morning. Uh, I am Simon. I'm the pastor here, as I think Raquel mentioned. If we've not met, nice to meet you. You're all looking good. Um, guys, we're going to just jump right into things this morning. We've been working through, most of you know this, if you're a visitor though, I'll just quickly kind of tell you what we're doing. We've been working through the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a sermon series that we've entitled Unlikely Church because, as we've been saying every week, the church in Corinth, which is this church we've been talking about, is arguably the most unlikely church to have made it out of the first century because it's just all sorts of things and stuff and challenges and drama and questions and struggles going on in this church. And it's so extremely helpful to consider what the gospel looks like in their context because, guys, in 2,000 years, people have not really changed at all. Like, we're all still looking for security. We're all still hoping for significance. We all still need the grace of God. So this letter has been super helpful. Guys, if you've been with us for the last couple of months or so, been tracking um, with us through this series, if you've been listening online, the last, gosh, four or five weeks, we've been, we've been delving into some pretty heavy subject matter. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm like, look, let's, let's come up for a breather. This is all starting to feel a little intense. Um, so today, we're going to just go right into 1 Corinthians 15 and talk about death. You guys with me? <laughs> this is actually not a joke. So buckle up. Here we go. Part 25, the death of death in Jesus Christ. Um, you might notice that we're skipping a relatively significant portion of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, it's arguably my favorite portion, certainly of 1 Corinthians 15, possibly um, top five in the New Testament, but it's Paul unpacking the implications of the resurrection. We're going to wait two weeks and come back to that on April 1st. This morning, death. Okay, so if you have a Bible, and now would be the time to grab it. We have some in the aisle here. Open your phone or read along. 1 Corinthians 15, chapter, or chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. Paul writes, I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, that is, die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. We shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? I've only ever preached one other time on this particular passage. It was probably seven, eight, nine, I don't know, ten years ago. I was still living in London at the time. Um, A very close friend of mine, my little girl's godmother, um, a young lady named Jillo, 
We were walking through a beautiful cemetery on our way to the funeral of the mother of a mutual friend. And as we were walking through the cemetery, just chatting, it was a beautiful day. You know, it was a bit somber, obviously, a sad occasion. And I, I commented to Jillo, you know, I've never done a funeral. Like as a pastor, I've never, I've never preached at a funeral. I've done a few weddings, those are super fun. But gosh, I don't, I have no idea what I would say at a funeral. Well, I, I reckon I don't need to worry about it for a while. I'm still quite young, most of my friends are all quite young. Um, as we walk up, literally like a few seconds later, as we're walking up, big crowd of people, I see my buddy uh, Dre, um, Adure is his name, Nigerian guy. He, uh, he looks at me with a slight look of panic in his eye, and he comes over to me and he says, Simon, the priest can't be found. Can you do my mom's funeral? I'm like, what am I going to say? No. Of course, I'm fully prepared, in season and out of season. I'm like, yeah, I'm just, I'm there for you, buddy. So I quickly scurry around the corner, open my Bible. I'm like, I think, I think there's something in here about Jesus overcoming death. And I turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I preach what was probably at best a decent sermon on 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, fortunately, the, the lost vicar did, in fact, show up, so I kind of preached and then tagged out, and he, he finished up, and he did an excellent job. Um, guys, this is a, a, perhaps a portion of Scripture and arguably a subject that I don't think we, in general, think about a lot. I'm not saying we're, like, oblivious to it. We all, obviously, we know about death. We have, I'm sure we've all been to a funeral or two likely. But as a society, I, I would argue that it's not something that's like at the forefront of our, of our thinking. It's not a part of our everyday life. Life expectancy is much better than when this was being written. And honestly, just on, on a cultural level, we, we've done a pretty good job at just sort of keeping the whole issue, if I can put it that way, of death off to the side. I don't know if we're doing ourselves any favors. I think it's, it's a common aspect of life, something that affects our outlook on life far more than perhaps any of us actually realize. It, it matters what we think or feel or how we view death. In fact, I would put it this way. Every religion, every philosophy, every worldview has to be able to address a few core aspects of, of life. Um, four, to be specific. Um, if anyone read, uh, has read Ravi Zacharias, you'll recognize these four categories of how to um, evaluate the substance of any worldview. And those four categories are this. Number one, every religion or worldview has to be able to answer the question of origin. Where do we come from? Is it happenstance? Is it design? Is it a distant, stoic, uninvolved God? Or is it a personal, loving creator? Origin, where do we come from? Number two, what are we doing here? Purpose, what am I meant to actually accomplish and do with my life? 
Number three, how do I do it? What are the rules by which I'm to engage life by? As I pursue my purpose, as I fulfill the reason that I was given life, how am I supposed to go about it? And we call that ethics or morality. And fourth and final, ultimate destiny. Where do we go or what happens when we die? Origin, purpose, morality, and destiny. Christianity, I would contend, does a phenomenal job at presenting a coherent and realistic explanation of those four common categories of our human reality. It's a great way to evaluate the... um, it's a great way to evaluate any faith. Can it answer those difficult questions? Can it do it with coherency? Can it do it in a way that actually aligns with, with reality? So it's important that we think about this. Because in the final analysis, we all have to deal with the reality of death. Now, how? How do you think about death? Have you been to a funeral lately? Um, a friend of mine actually just died last week. I don't know, some of you, if you're coming from Grace City in Corvallis, you may have know, known Tom Turkleton. Remember Tom and Nancy Turkleton? Yeah, Tom died last week. Yeah, very, very sad. Um, I wasn't super close with him. Tom and Nancy gave us our uh, mobile baptismal. It's in my backyard. We'll use it in a park someday. How do you process death? Let me suggest a few, a few ways, and then we'll, we'll get straight into what, what we actually just read. Number one, and most of this is probably subconscious, most of this is deliberate, but you could possibly just be in denial about it. Just don't think about it. Try not to think about it. Suppress it, avoid it, delay it. Pretend like you're gonna live forever and just obsess over being healthy and, and all of that. Um, that's, I think, our default cultural stance, sort of being conditioned to think that somehow we're gonna like, live forever. Um, we know we won't. We could view death as an escape route. You guys know what I'm talking about? Number three, we could view death as a difficult but ultimately beneficial next step. This would, of course, kind of get us over into sort of Eastern mysticism or Eastern sort of philosophy, death being viewed as this is the way that I basically detach from the physical world. This is the way that I detach from my body, from anything that is material, which ultimately is evil. This is, of course, a philosophy that is utterly alien to the Judeo-Christian mindset. We could view death as something almost to be celebrated, this idea that like, oh, you know, it's, it's a good thing because now my loved one is free from this body. And on one hand, I, I hate, I think my cousin who just died of cancer about two years ago, it was the last funeral that I attended. She's only about two years older than me. She's still quite young. And she lost a very long, arduous battle against breast cancer. She left behind a husband and a little one. And it utterly broke my heart. And part of me was very grateful that she was finally free from her suffering. But this idea of death being like in a, a good thing in a way, it's, it's foreign to scripture. 
We're not to view death as an ally or somehow a positive next step. It's something that was never meant to be a part of the plan, which brings us to, I would suggest, the fourth way to view death, and that is the uniquely Christian view, and that we are to view death as something to be undone. It's something to be undone. It's a part of a world that's broken. It's the side effect of the curse, and death is something that ultimately God himself will undo and overcome. And that is the unique Christian perspective when it comes to death. Paul writes, starting in verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the dead will be raised, we will be changed, our bodies will be changed. We're gonna talk much more about the body when we back up to resurrection. He says that the imperishable will become, or the perishable will become imperishable, the mortal immortal. Then will come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? It's a contest. It's, it's a protest against death. Oh, death, where is your sting now? He's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. He's actually quoting Isaiah and Hosea, but that line, death is swallowed up in victory, he's, he's quoting from Isaiah 25. In fact, I'd like us to go there. It won't be up on the screen, but if you want to flip over to Isaiah 25, excuse me, Isaiah, someone corrected me recently. Isaiah, that's how, that's how the Brits say it. Isaiah chapter 25, verse eight. The prophet says, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. Reproach is like shame, dishonor. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. There is an expectation, a vision, for how God will ultimately defeat death. He will overcome it. will be swallowed up in God's victory and we will rejoice in our salvation. Death is viewed as an intruder, an unnatural event due to sin, due to evil. It's not to be embraced. It's a temporary reality to be undone. What does this mean? What does this mean? I'll say three things. Number one, This means, and this might seem obvious, death itself will be no more. So when the prophet says death will be swallowed up in victory, he literally means it. Death is a reality that ultimately will be put a stop to. Death will be defeated. Let me read this to you out of uh, Revelation. We're actually going to flip to Revelation a couple times in a moment. But let me just read to you out of Revelation chapter 20. Verses 14 and 15. 
Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. It's figurative. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Death will be no more. Number two, it also means that pain, pain will be no more. Emotional, physical pain will be overcome. Revelation 21, verses three and four. Going on just a little bit, it says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is the vision of the kingdom of heaven coming down. You know, Jesus taught us to pray, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. You know, the final vision of God overcoming death, it's this picture of God's dwelling place, the kingdom of heaven, as it were, coming down to earth and the dwelling place of God being the shared space, our dwelling place, the dwelling place of creation itself, of us, of man and woman. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more Neither, there sh- neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The Christian perspective on death isn't just that physically something will change, but a reality of emotional relief. Knowing that whatever you're going through now, no matter how hard life might be or get, there is a greater reality to come. It's interesting that in that that sort of that heavenly vision, in that picture of God's kingdom coming down, God's dwelling place becoming ours, it says that he'll wipe away every tear. It's, it's It's a given that we will suffer in this world. In fact, it's, it's one of Jesus' promises to us. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. You will suffer. But take heart. I have overcome this world. I've overcome death. And I will overcome death and pain. Finally, what does this mean? What is Swallowing death up in victory mean it means that the devil will be defeated. The devil. I don't like talking about Satan. Jesus talked about Satan. It's important that we think about this. The devil is defeated. I love this. The writer of Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says, Through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. I was just having a conversation with um, Taylor yesterday. We were talking about this and how it would seem that in our, our Western um, experience of life, the supernatural, the paranormal, it, it's sort of viewed as this like, thing that like, weird conspiracy theorists like to talk about, but like, 
actual thinking people don't really buy into it. And yet, I don't know about you, I've been around. I've been to third world nations. Um, Some of you live in in different countries around the world. Um, It's not just like idiots that believe in in the supernatural realm. It's not just the uneducated that buy into this stuff. Um, It's a reality, and for whatever reason, I have my theories about it. In our culture here, talk of demons and Satan is largely just sort of brushed under the carpet. We don't want to talk about it, and I think it's true. Kevin Spacey, we've all heard it quoted a million times. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't even exist. And I know that weirds some of you out. I know it does. I know you, you don't like to think about it, and it just sounds very fairy tale ish And yet, guys, if you live life long enough, if you get out there, if you leave America, you'll realize that actually there is a spiritual realm, there is a kingdom of darkness, there is a hierarchy, there is a head. Jesus refers to him as that ancient serpent. The devil has been defeated and will ultimately be thrown into the lake of fire at the second coming of our king, Jesus. Guys, some of us live in this world where we are oppressed, we're harassed, we're manipulated, we're drugged down by spiritual forces of wickedness, to use Paul's language, and we don't even know it. We're oblivious We've become a pawn. Some evil harassment. We need to know that one of the great effects of Jesus' victory over death is that the ruler of death himself has been dethroned. Which says all sorts of things about how we pray. Um, the frequency of our prayers. Gosh, there's, there's times I could tell you some stories. I'll tell you one story. Um, this was my little boy Isaac was, I don't know, three or four. I think Evie must have still been in a crib. And uh, Isaac started having nightmares. This was at our house in London. Isaac started having nightmares, which is relatively normal. Kids have nightmares. Um, and he'd come into our room night after night after night. And, uh, you know, you console the little one. Sometimes they get into bed with you, and then and they knee you in the spine all night. And... But this one night, he comes in, and I remember thinking to myself, Could this, this has got to stop. I don't know if it was just me, like, feeling like I need to sleep, or me somehow, like, discerning something. But I went into my little boy's room, got him back in bed, and I sat down on his bed with him. And I just started praying. Almost immediately... I was overwhelmed with this uh, sense of some sort of sinister presence. I'll put it that way. I wanted to just run out of the room. I wanted to do what Isaac had been doing like every night for I don't know how many nights. That was the overwhelming feeling. Like I just wanted to run. It was like a fight or flight sensation. And I sort of willed myself to stay there. I didn't pray a lot. I just simply said, in the name of Jesus, you leave now. And like that. It was just, 
was gone. There was something in the room. There was something in the room, and it left. In the name of Jesus, you leave now. Because you see, the devil, he is a defeated foe. He is a defeated enemy. His only real weapon, certainly against a child of God, is fear. It's fear. Now, if you're not under the covering protection of the king of the universe, well, that's another matter. That's another matter. But if you're a child of God, the scriptures say that the children of God are protected by the spirit of God. We are now members of a new kingdom, a greater kingdom with supreme authority so that when we pray in the name of Jesus, we can command spiritual forces of wickedness, demons, to leave like Jesus, and they will. Not because we are Jesus, but because we're members of his kingdom. We've been commissioned as ambassadors, given authority to speak and to pray, to confront dark forces in the name of Jesus. Does that weird you out? I hope it at least gets you thinking. I hope it at least gets you wondering, like, gosh, what's, what's going on in my life that I've just been so quick to just sort of dismiss as like, ah, uh, you know, it's just an emotional thing, it's just this thing, it's that thing. And look, don't misunderstand me. Like, I, I think it's, it's a major problem just to start sort of calling every little wrong thing or difficult feeling, like, oh, it's spiritual, oh, it's a devil, it's that, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Get a good counselor. Um, maybe change your diet. And pray in the name of Jesus. Always. So, okay, so where does this leave us? Where does this leave us? Um, what do we do with this? What are the implications? A few things. Number one, he says something about a trumpet. Where is it? Um, he says, the trumpet will sound. There it is, verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. What is, what is this trumpet? Guys, again, we're gonna go to Le- um, Revelation chapter 11. This one's actually up here. It's a bit longer. It says... Then the seventh angel, that's the final angel, the final trumpet, blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for the destroying the destroyers of the earth. That trumpet means that there is a day of reckoning the day of judgment, that great and awful day of the Lord. There's a, an incredibly 
encouraging and, and terrifying reality. The Christian worldview, what we're talking about, if you're a follower of Jesus, is one such that this doesn't just go on and on and on and on forever. I understand there's great appeal to the, the, the doctrine of karma, the, the, the philosophy of karma, and I'm not here to bash other religions or belief systems, but the problem that I have with that is that ultimately it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to actually find hope in that worldview. Because I don't know about you, but I, if, I, if it was just simply up to me and my karma, I would constantly be wondering like, oh, snap, how good am I doing today? If it was to all end here and now, I don't know. I'd, I'd be slightly uh, concerned about, about my next life. What the scriptures tell us is that no, it's not a never-ending cycle. It's, there is a definitive moment. There is a day when the trumpet will sound and God's wrath will be poured out. And it's, it's interesting that we need, to, we need to understand something. God's wrath here isn't, it's not an, a vindictive rage. It's his rescue plan. It's a part of his love manifesting in a broken world. The, the, the picture that I think should come to mind, if you're, if you're a student of the scriptures, is when God's people Israel were being delivered from Egypt. Familiar with the story? Coming out of Egypt, seeing the Disney movie. Um, it's a great movie. And God commands Moses to tell his people, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to, I'm going to finally deliver you from this oppressive slavery that you've been living in for 400 years, what I'm going to do, because your oppressor's not gonna just simply say, hey, it's been real, have fun, like, thanks for uh, 400 years of, of slavery. No, they're not gonna let you go. They have another plan for your life. They wanna keep you right where you're at. And so what I'm gonna do is pour out my wrath. I'm going to, I'm going to pass judgment, and anyone who wipes the blood of an unblemished lamb over their doorway and then enters into their house, they will be covered by my blood. And this isn't just for the people of Israel, this is anyone who would come under the covering of that, that, that home with the blood. And then I'm gonna pour out my wrath as a means of rescuing my people. Now if you refuse, if, if, you, if you won't accept my terms, if you refuse to come under my covering, it's, it's gonna go terribly, terribly bad for you. But we have to remember that when God pours out his wrath, it's always of his, an expression of his saving love. It's an expression of his saving love. That's what we're talking about here. The horn will sound, the trumpet will blast, and the Lord God Almighty will exhibit his great power it says that the nations rage, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, for the rewarding of your servants, for the deliverance of your children, the prophets, the saints, and those who fear you, both small and great. That's very, very hopeful. The whole broad spectrum of God's people, not just us, not just this tiny little sliver, this little pocket of Christendom, small and great, 
and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Ultimately, all that's evil, all that's broken, all that's unjust, all that would kill, all that would steal, all that would destroy God's good creation will be done away with. Have you ever had a moment where, I call that a near, have you ever had a near-death experience? Have you ever almost, have you ever almost died? It's terrible. I almost died a few times. Stupid, super stupid back in the day. Probably my, my closest, nearest, realest near-death experience, this was, I was probably 21, 22, I'd been out, partying, drinking, decided to drive home, 3 or 4 a.m., something like that. Just dead tired. Fell asleep behind the wheel. I was going down the freeway. I don't know how fast I was going. Super fast, freeway fast. I wake up. I didn't know I fell asleep, but I wake up, and all I can see is branches hitting my windscreen. Just, just bouncing off-roading. I'm like all over the place. Me and my little Ford Ranger, we are like going for it. I had veered off the freeway and was like careening down this like hill, this canal, this ravine on the side of the freeway. Finally, I mean, hit the brakes, slammed to a stop, jump out of the car thinking like it's, it's going to blow up or something. <laughs> and somehow, I mean, it was like pitch black out there. Somehow I managed to climb my way back up this hill and look back down and just saw my, my little Ford Ranger was just demolished, utterly demolished. Of course, I was panicking, I was in shock, and I just thought, well, I can't call the highway you know, patrol. Like, I'll, I'll probably end up getting like a DUI or something. So I just started walking, just walking. It took me about four hours to walk home. And the whole way, I'm just thinking, I almost died. I almost died. Where would I be right now? Like, what would be the... What are the eternal ramifications of how I'm living and where I'm at before God? This, is, this doesn't make great, like, popular preaching, but it's such a huge part of, of the scriptures, the story of God, that God patiently woos, calls, loves, draws, people to himself so that we can be saved. I love what, uh, what Peter says um, in 2 Peter 3 and I, and the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know why I think the trumpet has not yet been sounded? It's because God really, really loves the world. He's, he's waiting. He's wooing. He's drawing people to himself because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to be left outside of his covering. And yet the reality is there is a choice to be made. There is a choice to be made. Number two, that was number one. The implications. Number two, this one's a little less depressing. Um, what, do, what do we do in light of God's victory over death? 
as God's children, we confront death. We confront death wherever we see it. Christianity is the quintessential anti-death movement. It's, it's an anti-death movement. It's, it's anti-death, it's pro-life, it's pro-love. Ironically, it's also pro-choice. The Bible is shockingly forward about the fact that God gives us like free will, like the ability to choose. And there's no getting around the fact that the Christian movement is an anti-death movement. Um, we won't flip there now, but I think probably one of the greatest uh, illustrations of this is in John chapter 11. This is when um, Lazarus, he was the brother of Martha and Mary, he dies, you may be familiar with the story, and he's been put in a tomb, stones rolled over, four days he's been in the ground, or in this cave. Jesus finally arrives on the scene, and Lazarus, this dead man, his sisters are, are, are they're, they're beside themselves. They're grieving, obviously, they're mourning, they're upset, they're wondering why Jesus took so long to get there. And what does Jesus do? He confronts death. I love, uh, there's actually a few things that happen that I think are very helpful for us. First thing that we see happen is Mary, no, rather Martha, approaches Jesus and says, Jesus, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And you get a bit of like a, she's objecting. She has, she has a serious problem with the fact that their brother is dead, which is actually a great way to begin grieving, anger. It's healthy. But she understands this, no, no, this shouldn't have happened. Jesus, you could have stopped this. Where were you? a healthy emotional response. And then it says in John chapter 11, verse 35, some of you may know this verse from memory, it says Jesus wept. We see this man who loved his friend Lazarus weeping over his death. He's not saying, oh, it's no big deal. It's fine. No, no, he's, he's literally weeping because of his friend's death. And so we mourn when we see death. But what he does next is awesome. Verse 39 in John chapter 11, he commands them to take away the stone. He looks at this tomb and there's a big stone and he says, take away the stone. And one of the sisters says, oh, Jesus, bad idea, four days? It's, it's a, bit, a bit stanky. He says, the odor will be foul by this time. Do you really want to do this? And he says, take away the stone. I don't care how bad it smells. Guys, there's, there's something, there's a powerful spiritual metaphor here that I think we would do well to, to notice. Where we see death, where we smell death around us, we as followers of Jesus are called to be those who bring life. And sometimes death smells. Sometimes it's just stanky. And we would just as soon keep the stone over the door. Like, let's not go there. 
Let's not talk about that. Let's not deal with that. Let's not have that conversation because that's just some stank odor. It could be your marriage. It could be a, a, a relationship with a colleague. It could be your debt. It could be the emotional pain that you don't like to talk about. It could be your thoughts of suicide. It could be a past that is just crushing when you think about it. It could be a physical disease that you're carrying around with you in your body. It could be the simplest little thing that's actually the seed of death, a cancer beginning to spread and take over your outlook, your attitude, your, your view of life. And we don't want to go there because it's just like, ah, it's just nasty. Like, let's talk about happy stuff. And yet Jesus, that's exactly where he goes. And he says, forget the odor, roll back the stone. It's time to confront this thing head on. Does this connect with any of you guys? Is there any area in your life where you're like, look, don't turn that stone over. Don't turn that stone over. It's stinky. It's embarrassing it smells so bad. And I believe the Spirit of God would say to you, no, turn that stone over. We can deal with the funk. Let's speak to that thing and command life. Let's wrestle with that thing. Let's, let's believe that Jesus is greater than whatever is dying in your life. And Jesus cried out, Lazarus, come out. And so we cry out. And we exude life. Paul writes in a second letter to the Corinthians, he says, Thanks be to God who manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place we go. See, there's a counter aroma that we have as followers of Jesus. We walk out there, it's like, oh my goodness, death, death, pain, brokenness, depression, media, just Every other day, someone's getting blown up. The story is always death, violence, despair. As a follower of Jesus, I've got something else to say. I've got another story to share. And wherever I go, wherever we go, we're meant to, to manifest a counter aroma. Something sweeter, something more full of hope, something truer than the lie that somehow death is the end. No, it's not. We have a king who's literally, literally overcome death. And so as a child of God, I step into those places, I'm like, roll the stone back. Let's spread the sweet aroma of life. And we speak to death. Guys, this, again, this, this says something about how we pray. <laughs> I was, I was uh, sharing at the pre-service this morning. Everyone who volunteers, we come a little bit early. You can come, you can help, you can be a part. And uh, we were talking about opportunities. And I was saying, I had an opportunity this morning. I prayed for the checkout lady um, at my Safeway. So I was picking up the muffins. They're gone. Um, I never get a muffin. <laughs> Tammy, I see Tammy every Sunday morning. And she, is, she makes my day. She's just full of life. She is full of life. And I saw her this morning, she was stoic. And I said, Tammy, what's going on? Like, well, you're not your normal chipper self. I said, what's going on? And immediately her chin started to quiver. She's like, 
fighting back tears. And uh, I didn't know if she was going to tell me what was going on. She was clearly kind of trying to keep herself together. And she told me what she was dealing with. I'm not going to share the whole story. Sure. It was kind of funny. Something to do with stretchy pants. That's all I'll say. Okay. That's all I'll say. But she was, she was struggling with something. An injustice in her workplace. And guys, I, I'm no one special. Look, I'm not like super bold guy. Trust me, I'm not. But in that moment, I felt the Spirit of God prompt me. Speak life. So without even asking her permission, I just started praying for her. I'm not even sure if she knew exactly what was happening initially, um, but I just said, Father, bless Tammy. Bless her. I pray that you would bring joy and healing in her heart today. I pray that you would begin to show her how you love her and how you're for her, et cetera, et cetera. Because this, this is how we live. When out in our world that is broken, that is full of trouble and pain and death, to be sure, as children of God, as children of the resurrected Christ, we go out into this world and we begin to speak life. And sometimes that begins in our own heart. And your own heart. Sometimes it means you gotta like get a little aggressive with some spiritual forces working around you. Sometimes in my prayer life, like I'm sitting at the edge of Isaac's bed, and I say, whoever you are, I don't care what your name is, get out of my house now in the name of Jesus. Sometimes we gotta, we gotta talk to our own soul that way. Whatever's going on here is not from my heavenly father. You thought of suicide, you darkness, you heaviness, you joy robber, get out now in the name of Jesus. And we confront the spirit of death. We speak life the things that are dying around us and sometimes even on the inside. And finally, we wait and we hope. We wait and we hope. Because guys, we are still living in, in, in the twilight hour. I don't mean twilight zone. I mean that in-between time where people will still die. And some of, for some of you, look, at this has like just been pure theory. You're like, oh, this is some interesting Christian theology. For some of you, this is deeply personal. You're still mourning the death of, of someone that you loved dearly. So I don't want to just make this into some sort of abstract talk. We wait and we hope. Let's finish our passage. Next slide, please. Paul writes, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. We go on loving. We go on hoping. We go on believing. We go on working. We go on praying. We go on fighting. We go on speaking. We go on standing. We go on trusting that our King who conquered death is coming back. And that trumpet will sound and the, the curtain will fall and there will be an ultimate and final undoing of death and all that's gone wrong. 
and we wait and we hope. And we wait and we hope. And we wait and we hope. Because our God is a great God. He's a faithful God. He's a loving God. He's a capable God. And death will be no more. Can we stand together? Guys, as the band leads us in the final song of worship, this is a moment for us to reflect and remember the death of our Savior. Remember, we're talking about the death of death in Jesus Christ. How is any of this possible? How is this a reality? Because God himself bore death for us. He conquered sin by giving his own life so that we can be confident as we look to the next life. As we experience new life in this life, that's possible because of who God is and what he's done in Jesus Christ. And so we take the bread, we take the juice, and we say thank you. Thank you, Jesus, our great and faithful king who gave his body and who spilled his blood. And we remember who he is and who we are. When you're ready, welcome you to take communion and worship.